Alabama's only union talk radio program. We are now in overtime. Uh, that is our the online-only portion of the show. We are on Facebook and YouTube. This will be up as a podcast later. Uh, we are, this part of the program is also on internet radio station, Unclaimed Mysteries Radio here in Huntsville. We got some good stuff for you today. Going to be talking about uh, Jimmy Dore's anti-worker contract. We're going to be talking to Brad Alsop uh, from ESVN about sports. Going to be talking about some uh, really cool grievance wins that um, that people were talking about on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. So uh, really great stuff. Really looking forward to getting into that. And uh, we are going to start off with this uh, Walker Bragman piece about Jimmy Dore. Uh, Jimmy Dore is an internet media personality. Uh, you know, a lot of folks that are listening to us maybe don't know him because we're more in the, you know, we're, we're definitely more in the labor media space as opposed to the YouTube media space. But he's an internet media personality. He loves to posture as the most, the most pro-worker, the most pro-Medicare for all, even though he endorsed a candidate for president who said Medicare for all is un-American. You know, he... People don't really like to be reminded of that. Um, but, you know, the most this and the most that, right? He's the most. Well, you know, even just from his commentary, in my opinion, there's all sorts of reason to doubt this. Um, one being the thing that I just mentioned, right? He endorsed a, a candidate who says Medicare for all is anti-American. Um, but another, you know, we covered this last year when it happened, when he sided with Biden Democrats and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot against the Chicago Teachers Union in their fight for a safe return to work program. Saying that, uh, you know, teachers were fear mongered by Fauci. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's some some reasons just from his commentary to be like, yeah, is this guy really the most pro worker? Is is, is that you know, an accurate some summary of his views. Well, you know, more reason has come out to doubt his pro-worker bona fides. Uh, and to discuss this, we've got the man who brought some of that to light, journalist uh, Walker Bragman. Walker, thanks for uh, talking to us this morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad to have you. Glad to have you. So your piece is titled, Jimmy Dore's, quote, very pro-employer, unquote, work contracts. So tell us what exactly is so pro-employer about them. Well, Dore's contracts have a really extensive non-disclosure section. Now, NDAs are common 
you, you know, in, in the entertainment industry and whatnot. But Doors is three pages long and mm. nine parts, which is very extensive. Under this agreement, uh, the contractor would not be able to discuss, um, say, verbal abuse that they experienced uh, working with Door. Um, and, you know, that's that's a problem. Sometimes NDAs are as short as a paragraph or even a sentence. It's not uh, there's no hard and fast rule that it has to be uh, this thorough. Now, the NDA comes with a uh, with a liquidated damages clause. Um, there's a so ten thousand dollars in liquidated damages per breach of the NDA, um, which is a lot of money for uh, a contractor working on an internet show um so there's that and then there's there's also uh conflicts under the contract go to arbitration uh, there's a forced arbitration clause so uh as i'm sure your audience knows arbitration is uh where parties um take their dispute out of court and hand it over to an arbitrator uh, and that arbitrator, typically, they're they're seen as more favorable to the employer. Uh, right. Workers workers tend to get lower um, rewards from arbitration. They're likely to win uh, less frequently <clears throat> in arbitration, and uh, arbitration is costly. Mm -hmm. uh, arbitrators have to be paid generally on a daily basis, so day to day yeah. basis. So it's it's expensive. Um, and under Doors Agreement. Uh, the arbitrator, the the costs of arbitration are split between Doors Company and the uh, and the worker. So it's there. There are a lot of cost barriers here to um, airing out grievances or uh, or or holding Door accountable. And you mentioned in your piece that arbitration can sometimes be preferred by uh, by unions, and I think it's worth mentioning that you know. Um, arbitration in collective bargaining agreements is really pretty, the, the power, uh, you know, the power balance is really pretty different than it is yep. in a, you know, the reason that unions sometimes prefer arbitration is because, uh, they feel like they have been able to select an arbitrator with the company that is, that is going to be more fair. Whereas when, in, when just an employer says, you know, as an in an individual, not collectively bargained contract, saying this is the third party arbitrator that I've chosen, take it or leave it. Right? That's it's totally different. Right. Totally different. Uh, and that's the reason that unions sometimes prefer arbitration is because we have the ability to say like, okay, this is who we're going to have as the arbitrator. These are the rules that they have to follow. You also exactly. mentioned in your piece that you know <laughs> that arbitrators don't have to follow uh, you know necessarily the law or past precedent and stuff, and that's you know really important for folks to understand why forced arbitration is is. Pretty uniquely There's also very bad. little recourse. There's also right. very little recourse. If the arbitrator gets it wrong, I mean, you're kind of you're kind of SOL. You know, like it's it's not. Th there's no way. There's no way to spin this contract as mm. favorable to workers or in any way even neutral. I mean, it's very right. clear what the the who the contract benefits, and that is Jimmy Dore. Right. A absolutely. And that is you know. The, <laughs> some of this stuff, it you know, it is 
not uncommon that arbitration is in employment contracts. It's not uncommon that NDAs are in employment contracts. It is uncommon, you know, how long and extensive and thorough his NDA is. And, you know, it's it's worth questioning, you know, like, why is it that he doesn't want people that he works with, that he works with, you know, being able to talk about his investments or his business partners? You know, I don't have any issue talking about or his performance, his or performance, his which right. his performance, like on the job, like how does how does Dor do his like? This is this is basically it's just a gag order. You can't right. you can't talk about anything. Um, right. Now right. you know there's the uh, obviously I, I wanted to protect the source or sources that I got this from so that I couldn't explore all of the legal issues that may be tied to this contract or maybe not. Um, but those, those ones, the NDA uh, with the liquidated damages clause, which um, liquidated damages, by the way, just to clarify for people are agreed upon damages for violation of particular contract terms. Um, so in this case, any violation of the NDA, any of its provisions, um, triggers automatic damages uh, in the amount of $10,000, which can really <laughs> add up. You know, that is that is a lot of money. Um, and uh, the, the power imbalance here, is, as you mentioned, you know, there is a very clear power imbalance. And it favors it favors Jimmy Dore. And for can a I pro worker guy. I don't know. Ask maybe a stupid question here, but I just want to clarify his staff is not unionized, correct? Uh, I did the employees have a union? I don't have the answer to that, but I don't believe so. I, I, I let me let me let me say I I don't know for sure, but my my uh, understanding is that there is not a union. I I could be wrong. And I think well the uh, the contract you just described is probably a good indicator that there's not, but. Well, and well, also, this isn't even an employment contract. This is an independent contractor agreement. So this is like, ooh. this is like somebody that, um, if if you were somebody that was going to contribute in any way to Jimmy Dore's show, um, in the summer of 2020, this might be what you received as your uh, as your agreement. Interesting. And I think for me, you know, there is. There's for me, there's a difference in, you know, when we're talking about, you know, this or that, like celebrity or micro celebrity, like their personal behavior. You know, I think when we're talking about their relationship as an employer to their employees, that's pretty qualitatively different than whether or not they've got a big house. You know, people talk about his big house or Hassan's big house or Bernie's three houses. You know, that is not as important to me. You know, I think that I, if I were if I were any of these people, I would I would probably not keep as much money as they have, right? But, you know, I maybe maybe I would, maybe I would I don't, you know, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but how they treat their employees and or, or business par partners, people that they work with, that is to me much more, you know, telling of their, much more telling of their priorities, much more revelatory of whether or not we ought to trust them, right? Because like, right. I, you know, it, it's just a totally different thing. It's not, you know, it, it, it's on a totally different level from whether or not you have money when we're talking about well, how the, you treat your employees. The fact that he does have that money though, is relevant to the contract because 
door has more power in this situation than a contractor. Um, You know, now that's not to say who knows, you know, I'm the, the, the contractor could, could be uh, very well uh, have very deep pockets in which case, uh, you know, this, this might, this might work out more evenly, but typically uh, in my experience, people who do contract work for independent uh, shows and media are not do not have very deep pockets. So uh, the fact that Dora is able has that money is able to buy a nice house is able to like that that is power imbalance. Um, so I yeah. I did include it not because you know whatever you have a big house whatever but in right. this situation you have more power than right. your the the person that you're dealing with. Certainly. And, yeah, it's relevant. It's relevant yeah. and worth noting for the story, but it's not like you wrote an article about Jimmy yeah, Moore has no. a big house. <laughs> right. Like I, I that doesn't really, you know, when when that news came out, I wasn't I wasn't like, oh, Jimmy got, you know. Right, right. Like whatever. Th- this is this is much more serious. Um, because and, this and, is and, how you treat people that work for right. you. Like and so this and what you were mentioning there about the power imbalance, that can take us into some of the response from like doors orbiters because <laughs> because he has not he's not responded to this himself or or is that right? That is correct. You know, I gave Jimmy Dore multiple opportunities to go on record. Uh, I sent him two emails and I followed up in a direct message over Twitter. Um, because we follow each other mm-hmm. and we have communicated that way before. So I sent him those emails. I sent him messages on Twitter telling him to check his email, to get back to me, um, to to let me know uh, and to respond to not only the contract, but the allegations that were made by people that have worked with Dor in the past. Um, uh, namely, D- Dan Evans, who was Dor's producer at TYT. So Dor didn't take me up on it. When the article came out, he didn't come after me. Uh, he went after Jordan Sheridan uh, from Status Coup. And uh, he said that his agreement, that his NDA was standard um, and then attacked Jordan personally. And then uh, Aaron Monte, who's a writer for Gray Zone, came after me Um I talked to Aaron separately, uh, in pri- privately over over DM. So you know, I I know Aaron. I I, I like him. He's he's a you know a, a decent guy, um, in my mind. And um, but yeah, then then the the responses from Door World have been like, this is just a standard contract. Like, right? You've got nothing. I can't believe you're making a big deal out of this. And it really comes down to uh, fundamentally a misunderstanding of, of contract law and how uh, contracts are written and what these provisions actually do and what they are. And like, you know, yes, NDAs are common. That is true. This is not a standard NDA. Uh, in ter- I have not seen an NDA that is this thorough. Now, granted, if you... Um, you know, this could be a form contract. So it could, it could be that this is like a standard contract, but it's a very heavily employer favored standard contract. Um, Well, 
And, you know, it's it's yeah. worth noting that, like, uh, Emma Vigeland on the Majority Report mentioned that uh, they did not have have these in the contracts from TYT. So, you know, like, like it's not even like, oh, he, he just took his contract with TYT and turned it into a contract with for other people. It's like, this is different than what he was used to as a TYT employee employee which is you know which is pretty interesting and you know the the idea that like oh it's standard one like you mentioned it's not but also it's worth questioning whether quote unquote progressive people right. should operate as standard bosses like i don't you know like standard exactly. bosses suck like standard bosses are really bad and that, you exactly. know, and so maybe we shouldn't act like that but the craziest thing that i saw I was reading through some of these and you mentioned that Aaron Monte, you know, one of his things was like, this is just standard. This is standard. And it's like, that's silly, but you know, okay, fine. Um, there's a, there's a network of YouTuber people called the revolutionary blackout network. And one of them, her name is Sabby Sabs. And she was covering this and she just deployed straight up. I mean, like Cato Institute, Coke brother boss shit <laughs> and her defense of Jimmy Dore, which is like, why? I mean, why can't you just, if you're a fan of Jimmy Dore, you know, like I, some of the work that TYT does, I think is good. And I think is important. And I think it's bullshit the way that they reacted to their union campaign. Like, okay, why can't you just say that? I'm a fan of Jimmy Dore, but I think this is a bullshit contract. Like, why do you have to defend everything that he does? Because you're somehow aligned with him. It doesn't make sense to me, but right. the thing that she said was quote if you had a problem then don't take the job they're acting like these people were forced to sign this contract <laughs> and do the job they weren't and it's like yes of course holy crap this is a person who calls herself a revolutionary a socialist as we know as we know in every <laughs> in every setting in every uh you know employment setting uh there is the, the 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 person taking the the work has the has the power to just get up and walk away. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course. If you, you know, if you didn't want to pee in bottles, why'd you work at Amazon? Exactly. If you, <laughs> yeah. You signed up for this. If you, you know, I mean, this is exactly like every single worker who has ever organized in a workplace has heard this anti-union bigotry. Yeah. Kind of, and this is coming from a revolutionary socialist. Yeah, the the revolutionary case for um, arbitration and and uh, <laughs> and 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 gag orders, like what? Yeah, and and you somehow the revolutionary case Come sounds on. exactly. Yeah, somehow it sounds exactly like what you know the National Restaurant Association is going to tell us. Of, of course, employees. but but done in a revolutionary way. Right, right of course. Of course. <laughs> So it's that just, was it's so ridiculous. It's just like, yeah. come on, if you're going to critique the story, like do the basic research, understand the issues involved. Like, come on, like right. this isn't hard. This is just basic. Arbitration is bad for workers. Generally speaking, you, you shouldn't have arbitration clauses. Now, that's not to say there are some, you know, not every arbitration clause is as thorough as doors. Like right. doors, door has an arbitration clause and he also specifies that you ex explicitly that the contractor gives up their right to a jury trial. Like that's an added layer of, of protection for the employer. That's not in every arbitration clause Now, right. granted that's the effect of arbitration. You know, you give, you give up the, the right to a jury trial, but without it being stated explicitly, I guess there's some, there's some, uh, there's, there's more room for, for workers in a, in a legal side. I, I, 
you know, I, I don't know why they add it. I would assume that it gives more uh, protection for the for the employer. Um, like, that's ridiculous. It's just, you know, it's just it spells out everything so explicitly. There's cost sharing. We're not going to you know, we're not covering the if you lose attorney's fees are, you know, you're going to be paying our attorney's fees as well. This is like this is like really, really punitive. It's it, right. it's just so I, I don't know. I mean. Again, without without being able to reveal anything about sources where I got this contract, like uh, I, we can't explore all of the issues, yep. but these right. are the big ones that stand out. Well, I've got to say, if, you know, Jacob came to me and wanted me to sign a contract like that to participate on this radio show, um, not only would I question my involvement here, <laughs> I would question his leadership in his union Right. I might be making some calls behind the scenes like, yeah, you know, this guy course. like, yeah, like, you really going to like this guy to something. Um, yeah. Right. Just saying, like, you know, yeah, so I, I have no dog in this fight. I purposely try to avoid knowing who these people are. I don't know if I've ever watched more than, you know, five minutes of Jimmy Dore that and Jacob probably forced me to watch that. <laughs> But, um, you know, I'm just speaking, you know, as a as a worker who is on the left and who is a believer in unionism, that would be my response. And so, um, yeah, to me, it's how is this any different than some of these like, quote unquote, progressive nonprofits we've seen mm. busting their unions and, and and imposing same kind of conditions on their workers? Uh, so, yeah, it's. You know, I get that it's kind of a niche niche topic, but um, it's there's a it trend is. to this. There is a trend, and you know, Jimmy Dore's not the only person who um, talks progressive out of one side of his mouth while acting very differently when it comes to his own employees or contractors. Uh, right. We can but think people, of a lot of folks in corporate values. America. You got to right. live your values, right, or, or to the extent that you can. Um, right. Right. You you especially with how you treat workers, you got you got to pay them well. You got to, you know, not bind them to arbitration, <laughs> <laughs> not not uh, not prevent them from speaking out against uh, against um, bad working conditions. Yeah. Like, I, you know, that's interesting. There's, so, you know, the huge focus on that, because, like, dude, you talk on YouTube for a living. That's what you do is you just right. kind of like you talk shit on on camera and people well, and you, and, and, go and, along with that. Like, right. Are you really that scared that someone, you know, who has worked for you could also go out and just talk? That is suspicious to me. Well, and Adam, you, you I, I don't know if you've read the piece, but Walker mentions that that Jimmy Dore on his YouTube show has critiqued NDAs before. When he when it came out oh. that Trump made people sign NDAs, he said this is very right wingy. This is bad. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. It's a. Uh, you know, confidentiality for me, but not for thee. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's just, it's so, it's, it really like, it's incredible to me to watch sort of Doors Orbit, um, cope with this, and that's what yeah. they're doing. They're they're coping. They're they're struggling with it. It's hard right. for them to accept. It's it's like you know this this is and, and I should should mention that a lot of you know Door has fostered this um sort of ecosystem where he amplifies these individuals where he gives them platforms and and you know shares his audience with them they they build an audience together it's a it's very in a way it's it's a lot like what the right does 
um, right. where you see like the same actors going on each other's broadcasts and whatnot, like Ben Shapiro appearing on, you know, Crowder or whatever, or or um, yeah. So, so it's it, a little it functions- cottage industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a little cottage industry. And and there and and so when this gets revealed about Dora, the response is like we have to protect Jimmy Dore at all costs. Because there, there's a personal stake in it, right? But like yeah. it's just I never thought that I would see a day when leftists were defending arbitration and you know, forcing workers to give up their right to a jury trial, or, uh, or or, or just saying if you don't like damages. the conditions of the job, then don't take the job. Like that is to me that the, is so the, the most damning. Like the like the, like she's so struggling to come up with a way to defend Jimmy Dore that she's just falling back on stuff that she heard on right wing talk radio. Like that. Yeah. The, the people who call our show angry yes. say stuff like that. I we yeah. have had calls like that. If you don't like the job, then just work somewhere else. I mean, that's that's what I was reporting on the paper mill lockout in Alabama, and I asked a I was asking representatives in that area if they had supported the workers and a Republican representative said, no, I'm on the side of management. If they don't like it, they can work somewhere else. That was verbatim. What Republican representative Debbie Wood told me about a work dispute in Alabama. And this is what a revolutionary socialist is saying. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, it's, it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of overlap here between door world and, and the right on many issues these days. Like, Mm. You know, when it take take COVID, for example, you see the same conspiracy theories espoused on Jimmy Dore that you hear from like the Epoch Times or, uh, you know, these these radical like right wing uh, folks like it's you hear the same stuff and, and the same policy agenda pushed by Dore in relation to COVID that you hear from like the Great Barrington Declaration folks or the or or the Brownstone Institute, which is this right-wing dark money group that emerged right. in in 2021 um you know or even even scott atlas who is uh who is a former trump like you know the the former trump covid guy like you hear mm. the same policy agenda there's mm. this door has morphed politically over <clears throat> uh over the pandemic and is very i think very aligned now with with the with the far right on on certain issues um and that's why he appears on tucker carlson as frequently as he does that's why Mm. that's why they're they're amplifying him so you know it's i think it's i think it's important for people to understand sort of you know what kind of what kind of progressive jimmy Dore actually is um and and I think that his work practices are relevant to that. So you know, right. these people uh, who are who are freaking out and saying, "Oh, it's you know, it's it's a nothing burger," or 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 if you don't like it, just don't take the job. Like, right. you know, you're you're exposing you're exposing yourself. That's that's who you are. That's you you value the personality more than more than your progressive politics. Right. That that's the limits of politics as consumption and personal right. fandom. Yeah. yeah yep. Yeah. Walker Bragman, appreciate your time. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Uh, we got Bradley in the Zoom. We are about to be having Bradley in the Zoom, yes. Roll Tide, Roll Tide. Yeah, so <clears throat> Bradley Alsop 
is a uh, uh, producer on the Emma Sports Vigilant Network, ESVN, uh, and we're going to talk to him about some sports stuff. Um, Adam is definitely more the sports guy than I am. Super Bowl's tomorrow, right? Uh, yes, I may have heard that. Yeah. Uh, apparently, there's a big football game happening tomorrow. I, I, I two teams, literally, by the way, two teams are playing. Two teams. Yeah. yeah I literally uh, forgot that the Super Bowl was happening. And yesterday, I asked Adam if he could, like, do an interview <laughs> for a story on Sunday. I was like, hey, you know, could, could you talk to these people on Sunday and, and maybe write up an article for us? And, uh, and then I remembered, oh, yeah, he's watching. He's going to be watching the Super Bowl. He's going to be incapacitated all day and the next day, probably. Nah, <laughs> not these days. But uh, a few Brad years ago, yes, but maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not these days. Uh, so, Bradley, also appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Yes, of course. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. you sound great. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Apologies for all of the wrangling. I know I, I've been trying to come on for a few months, so I appreciate you guys taking the time as well. I'm very excited to talk to you guys. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Love when you call into the show, Jacob, uh, on on the Majority Report, and I, I'm very excited to be speaking with you both today. Thanks, appreciate thanks, appreciate it. Yeah, and so the first thing is, I guess, is that, um, you know, I I I know that you are, you know, you're you're kind of close to Emma because of your working on the show together, and so I'm. Do you have an idea of like how much money she gets from the Hump Day royalties? I don't know if you know this, Adam, but Emma coined the phrase Hump Day. And oh. she's able to get royalties every time someone says that. <laughs> Are you aware of like what the the level of that uh, my, is? My from? my NDA is stronger than the ones Jimmy Dore. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so okay. so I'm a lockbox for many reasons, and I, I, I can't disclose <laughs> that financial information. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, That's no, good. understand that because I'm just asking because I, I wanted to try to get an idea of how much we're going to be able to get out of her in our lawsuit against ESVN for taking our second half of the program name uh, because we have been having overtime on oh, our program. No we The second half of our show has been overtime for like a year and a half, for like two years, and y'all are just coming out here pretending like you came up with this name. And so I'm just trying to figure out like how much how much money we can get out of you for this copyright infringement and patent yeah, infringement that I'm going to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to speak with our, our high powered group of lawyers now that, <laughs> and uh, probably, probably mysteriously drop off this call as well. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I might be going through a tunnel in my apartment, uh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, actually it's so funny. I, I, I uh, apologies for, for any uh, in, in, inadvertent uh, fabulism there on our, our on our end. But uh, um, I, a good a good pal of our show Zeke Gonzalez who does a lot of clipping of our show he he suggested it to us early on we were like yeah that's a sports thing that's the well, you know that could be something to use as our second show mm -hmm. but you know I'll have to uh, when I when I return to when I return to the uh, smoke filled room that I, I I sit in with uh, a bunch of cigar chomping executives and without the majority report we'll have to do some thinking about how to how to make things right for you guys yeah, yeah confer yeah. with the legal team yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, confer, we'll talk to our people you talk to your that's people right, right. and we'll, yeah we'll, we'll talk again later <laughs> offline um so <laughs> so uh you know the the first thing that, that adam wanted to put, put to you is that you know we're you, you, 
you know that we're like a union show. And so uh, for labor folks, for left folks who are not sports fans like me, um, you know, what is what's the relevance of, of sports, I guess, for, for folks like us? Yeah, I think I think the big thing yeah, that people have to realize that um, when it comes to kind of the intersection of sports and labor is is and at least the idea of like, why should you be interested when to people who are not very much immersed in the sports world? It's like, what am I what am I concerned about, about guys who get paid millions of dollars to, you know, put on a uniform and play and like play, a you know, a sport with a ball, like put a ball in a basket or like throw a ball to another guy and like i think that's like reducing it or especially reducing it in terms of like what people might actually consider uh when they're talking about like sports in a more broader political um in the more of a broader political spectrum than just you know wins and losses like and that and and things like that like that are related to just sports itself like i think that's a big mission of our show of esp of esvn beyond just like our passion for the sports and the games themselves is to is to basically answer the question that you have, which is that when you actually maximize these things a little bit more, you can see players as workers. You can see owner ownership and front office structures as bosses. And you can see how that value from those players, that work, that being in front of a crowd, selling tickets, selling concessions, selling snacks, selling drinks, all of that stuff, that's labor being extracted from the players and the workers for these teams. And the the biggest share, the largest share of the pie goes to the people who don't do anything but have the money to put the funnel into it. The, if, you, if you think about ownership structures in any of the four major sports leagues, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, and the NHL, these are essentially, for, for bad teams, just as one example – it's the it's the it's the equivalent of a ro- like a robber baron mm-hmm. private equity vulture type guy or group owning a distressed asset making mm-hmm. passive income by doing nothing right. and the people who are at, and the people who are actually doing the work who are actually mm-hmm. creating the value for these teams and these franchises and these literal LLCs that are you know the Denver Broncos the Atlanta Hawks whoever they may be are not the people making the more the majority of the money are not the people with the majority of the shares. And so you can really easily see parallels when you watch sports and you get, and you drill down a little bit further into that, how much a lot of people in the, when the sausage gets made are materially exploited. And, and, and it's hard, it's hard to parse this or fathom this when you know that a guy like LeBron, it is hard to make the case that I've made to a lot of people because it seems kind of absurd to be like, Steph Curry makes a shitload of money. Can I curse on here? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, we're, oh, off yeah. The, we're off of the uh, <laughs> FM radio. Okay, cool. No FCC okay, cool. censorship. <laughs> like Steph Curry makes a shitload of money. LeBron James makes a shitload of money. But relative to the amount of money that the Los Angeles Lakers or the Golden State Warriors makes every year, they are still underpaid. Right. They are still not making a proportionate share of the value that they actually bring to their teams. And right. so I understand that it, I understand that it's, it's it seems like almost like small grapes to be like oh I mean they're still making millions of dollars right but that doesn't mean that there's not a guy up there don't get mad at LeBron James get mad at who owns the Lakers right. like get get mad at the people who are hoarding the money who don't do anything for it who right. all all they do their job is just ponying up the money so right. they don't have, if- they don't have, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jacob. No, well, and, and I mean, that's exactly right. And and then, you know, we have the workers, you know, the workers should have the value that they create. And then if we think that there are some workers who make so much value that maybe they don't need all of that, then we can tax it, right? We can just take it exactly. as a society and redistribute right. it. But right. the idea that, that I should be opposed to LeBron making more money is so silly because there's somebody above him who's not doing anything for to right. make the Los Angeles Lakers a valuable team is even making more than him. So yeah, totally. And then also there's the uh, there's the thing that which I think that these sports bosses they they love this idea because they're they're kind of in the shadows and people really don't think about them as much and they think about LeBron James who's who's a millionaire and and some of the uh, one or two of these people are even getting into the sing, you know 1 billion dollar billionaire type folks uh but then there's also you know lots of people like backbenchers for these teams that are not making millions exactly. of dollars a year maybe they're making a million dollars a year and especially when you're talking about the NFL the amount of damage that you're going to do to yourself, you know, as a low-level backbencher, fourth-string, you know, whatever, you know, you're just doing fine, and you will just be doing fine for the rest of your life. And, you know, you're going to hopefully, even as a low-level, you know, NFL player, you're going to be able to retire on that, and that's going to be your career. You'll have a few years, of, and then, and then you'll be fairly comfortable. But that's, you know, they're not extravagantly wealthy, a lot of these people. And then especially even more, that's still the case when you're looking at these, the big leagues. Some of these professional athletes aren't just extravagantly wealthy. But even more than that, when you go down to the minor leagues, like we just talked to last week or the week before, uh, the United Football League, uh, the the UF, UFL, USFL, USFL, United States Football League. You know, they're a minor league football team, and those players are only going to be making $60,000 a year, right? Which is which is fine for three months of work, but also it's like you're putting your body on a lot of risk for $60,000 a year. Uh, and then, you know, you're talking, when you think about the minor league baseball uh, players making $11,000 a year, some of these people, and, and the, you know, how fit they have to stay, how much practice they have to do all year for $11,000 is just, you know, people do not really have a proper understanding of, of professional sports as a, as a job, I don't think. Because, and it's a great point, both in terms of the NFL and the minor league system. And I mean, pre, and pre, of course, we can get into this as well. And pre a lot of the introduction of name, image, and likeness laws for college athletes, the, the, um, those certain areas were some of the most pernicious ex uh, examples of like labor exploit exploitation in sports. Minor league sports, the NFL in particular, because relative to the physical cost, <laughs> of being right. an, of being a football player and the fact that many if not all at least a lion's share of non-premier tier um nfl contracts are mostly non-guaranteed money so in the in the nba it's different even for lesser players and by lesser i just mean guys who are not right. in the you know, top 20 top 30 players in the league that money that they're getting is guaranteed if they get injured they're still getting getting a paycheck if they if they don't meet a games threshold, they're still getting a paycheck. If you're if you're a guy, if you're like a second string linebacker or a, or a lower lower tier draft choice for a team in the NFL, if you get injured, there are certain there there potentially will be stipulations and clauses in your contract where you're not getting paid for those games. You have to be healthy 
You have to make sure that your body does not get destroyed in a game that is designed to destroy your body right. to, to play in order to make money. And that, and that's happening in the biggest league in American sports that, that year in and year out prints money that makes billions of dollars in revenue that, that squeezes every last buck out of every last initiative game, whatever the case may be. And there are guys on these teams that, that are essentially sometimes in the locker room or whatever, getting shots of Toradol right before the game so they can play through a sprained ankle. Mm. and and so mm. they can make so they can get their game check right it's it's it is that is it is such a good point to bring up the people who you might forget about when you when or when you think of these leagues and you think of the top players there are a lot of people on a 53 man roster across 32 right. teams in the NFL who need to be taken care of and a lot of them aren't and especially right. the the other thing is the average stint in the NFL, the average tenure for a garden variety NFL player is about two to three years. Some of these kids, some of these guys come in the league, they're, they're 21 to 23 years old. Everything that they've been trained to do, sometimes they're out of a job at 25. Mm. That's a lot of, that's a lot of years left to figure out what the, what you're doing with the rest of mm -hmm. your life. Right. And it, <clears throat> it's not guaranteed and it's not particularly robust of a guarantee that the national football league is going to make sure that you're on your feet for the rest of your life. After what you gave to their, to their game, to right. the owner's game, to Roger Goodell's game for that 50 to 60 years after when you're not, you're not right. valuable to the NFL anymore. And, and you're it's not, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you're, and, you're, and you're, it's not just how much they give to the NFL in that short two to three year window that they come in and then they're out of a job and then they got to figure out what they're going to do for the, the the 70 years left in their life, the 50 years, maybe, you know, maybe more like 50 if you've played football your whole life, right? Absolutely. But the, and, and, and so let, let's talk about the NCAA because the, you know, you don't get two to three years in the NFL from nowhere. You get two to three years in the NFL because you have spent, 21 years of your life playing this really hazardous, dangerous game in, you know, little league and middle school and high school. And then at the NCAA, where at that level, you know, these are like grown ass men throwing around two, 300 pounds of weight. You know, I mean, people at my church growing up, we stopped playing tackle football when we got to be 16 years old and some of us were 200 pounds and we started breaking bones. We were like, okay, you know, this is a bit much, right? And, but these people in the NCAA, they're keeping on playing it. They're making their schools millions of dollars. And up until a few years ago, they weren't making anything. They weren't making anything. And, and I sent this article to you from, you know, I, the, the source is, is pretty lame. It's a right-wing, you know, media outlet in Alabama. Um, but they were talking about Saban's opinion on name, in it, name image, and likeness. And Adam was, Adam was and, and maybe it's just because I don't know as much about, like, what's going on in the sports world. But when I read this, I was like, what the hell is, you know, Adam said that Saban has actually been a lot better on this than some other coaches, but but I'll read a little bit from this article uh, for folks, and and then I'll I'll get uh, Brad and Adam your reaction to this. Um, several high school football coaches recounted Saban's comments, including one where a representative of a possible high school recruit asked for eight hundred thousand dollars in nil money from the university, and that didn't go over well with Saban. 
Quote, I told him he can find another place to play. I'm not paying a kid a bunch of NIL money before he earns it, unquote, Saban was reported to have said. Saban also referenced a player that was no longer on the team due to NIL payment issues. Quote, one of them wanted 500000 and for us to get his girlfriend into law school at Alabama and pay for it. I showed him to the door, unquote, the head coach reportedly said. And it's like, the, talking about I'm not going to pay this kid money before he earns it, you know, this is the, the, the paternalism in these comments to me were just infuriating because it's, these aren't, kids playing a game these are you know as we define them in the united states adults who are earning millions of dollars for the university of alabama and you can say or not whether this or that one is worth five or eight hundred thousand dollars but the idea that this person who is the highest paid public employee in the state of Alabama making tens of millions of dollars a year. And, you know, no doubt he's worth it. But the idea that somebody is saying is acting so indignant about somebody asking for what they think they're worth. It's just like, it, it really hit me the wrong way. But I, but Adam, you said that there, that there are coaches who are way worse than, than Saban. Yeah. The one that comes to mind is Dabo Sweeney. Um, yep. Brad, I don't know if yeah, if oh, that one comes to mind as well. But he's he's just, oh man, he he's had a lot of really paternalistic kind of uh, talk about this. Um, he's been very, uh, I think, antagonistic to the entire concept of players receiving money. Period. Uh, Saban seems, as he has over the course of his career, adaptable. Uh, and that is how I'm perceiving Saban is that he is kind of adapting to this new world. Um, the, the thing about this NIL that I think is worth really distinguishing is that for all these years, these college athletes have been functioning like employees. Mm. They have created tremendous value. I mean, and just, just as an example, Oklahoma and Texas are trying to leave to go to the SEC. Yep. It's what, $100 million that they are spending to leave one year early just to change the types of teams that they play, right? Just change their affiliation in the conference, get on different TV stations, all this. They 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 want to move one year early. They're willing to shout out $100 million to do this, most of which is going to Fox, the TV network, uh, in, in the negotiations. But, I mean, that's the kind of money we're talking about. Tremendous wealth has been created by these college players and all this time, you know, they have been restricted from what they could actually earn. Um, a few years ago, uh, and Brad, you may know more about this than me. I know several years ago, Northwestern University football players attempted to unionize. Yep. Uh, it was rejected. They were de deemed not employees. So, but the, the push for some kind of player compensation has really, really grown in recent years, especially as we know more about the risk involved with football. Uh, and the NCAA had this brilliant idea of, well, we're not going to compensate the players. The colleges don't have to compensate the players. <clears throat> we'll just let people fill in the gap, right? And rich boosters can show up and and create collectives of name, image, and likeness. And, you know, uh, Billy Joe's car dealership in Tuscaloosa can sponsor. And, and that 
you know, I don't know if you have more to speak on that, but to me, it was like a just, it was a brilliant trick that the NCAA has played, right? Because now some players are getting money, so some people can be happy with that. Um, some people are bitching and moaning about that. But at the end of the day, NCAA and the colleges themselves are continuing to reap the benefits of these players sacrificing without an employee status. Yeah, so so before before I get into that, because I have a lot to say about, you know, the uh, the dynamics at play there with the NCAA, but it, I just find it interesting that Nick Saban wasn't worried about earning his contract before he fucked up being on the, the head coach of the Miami Dolphins in the late 90s. Um, Right. Early 2000. He seemed he seemed to be totally fine with getting that money straight up before proving that he could be a good NFL coach. Mm. Um, and uh, when it comes to Dabo Swinney, the, the head coach of Clemson, um, he is a evangelical uh, right wing freak. And mm-hmm. um, he he once said a few a few months ago uh, at a press conference that um, the players and him have been participating in the name image and likeness game for a long time because they play with the name and image and likeness of the Lord um, in in mind when they, when they play. So, so Lord bless me as I hurt these people. (laughs) Right. It's a really neat trick for Dabo Swinney to employ that he's this leader of men who like makes his players really faithful, but you know, don't step out of line if you want a sponsorship from like checkers or something, because that's a little too uh that's that's kind of arrogant before before the lord this the the like he this idea of being so sanctimonious that your players that are basic that are essentially indentured servants in this in this uh um economy of college sports are kind of being audacious and a little inappropriate if they want to make money and yet then on the other hand that same person with those feelings can be literally as you said about Saban uh Jacob in uh, Nick Saban in Alabama guess who who is the highest paid public employee in South Carolina it's not their governor it's not it's not even Shane Beamer the co- coach of the University of South Carolina it's Davos winning in Clemson at Clemson so um seemingly fine with a handout from the government there that's fully guaranteed but nothing else for his players so that's that's also what you have to remember when um in terms of all of the laundering of these guys' images, um, it, when it comes to uh, uh, coverage of these guys and their their teams on uh, you know ESPN or things like that, is no one wants to really acknowledge that they continually continuously will fuck over their cheap labor um, with with zero uh, recourse or zero with without a second thought because at the end of the day their bags never messed up that right, their checks right. always clear. Right, it's, it's like we were talking earlier about the whole Jimmy Dore situation, a power imbalance. Right. There's whew, the power imbalance here is significant. I mean, could Absolutely. you just imagine for, for one second, like thinking about uh, a union trade, a trade union apprenticeship program where, the, you know, the director of the program is like, you know, I, I don't know about paying this guy, you know, $20 an hour. He, <laughs> I don't know if he's earned it yet. Right. Like you just don't. And that's we're talking about the same people. We're talking about the same people, whether, you know, they're 18 years old going into a trade union apprenticeship or they're 18 years old going to play for a D1 school. These are people that are working. These are people that are creating value. And in the case of of the latter, people working for, you know, an NCAA D1 school, 
uh, some of them are creating millions of dollars of value. You know, like an iron worker isn't necessarily an iron worker apprentice isn't going to necessarily create a million dollars of value in his first year, right? Uh, but but their directors aren't complaining and acting all indignant and paternalistic about them saying, you know, or about paying them. It's it's just so insane to me. And 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 in, with that in mind too, the other thing is I think is a common misconception, and not necessarily like. I don't think there's as much of this when it comes to college athletes because there's a little bit it's it's the narrative isn't like oh like you're so entitled that like you get to play sometimes there's a little bit of that for like basketball players at D1 schools like you're so entitled like you got a free ride like you got mm-hmm. like, you you basically go, just go to school to um be a be a like a basketball player like there is sometimes that type of rhetoric but there's also on the other side of that the sanitizing rhetoric of look how much these guys play just for the love of the game. Like mm. they play for the love of the game. They don't, all they get out from it is just victory. These intangible um, aspects of the game, just winning, like overcoming odds. Like there's so much valorizing and narrativizing and sanitizing for like, for example, March Madness, where it's like all of these guys coming together for some of their last rides to really prove themselves. And there's with the underwriting veneer, obviously that literally, None of these guys are getting paid to play um, directly by the NCAA. A lot of them are essentially, with with respect, they're nobodies. They're not going to be, not every player from Mercer College or from North Carolina A&T is going to get a a walk-on or going to get a draft spot in the next NBA draft. Um, These guys, once these games are over, either they have another year at school or they're done playing there forever. They are not, they are done playing their and their college basketball careers and basketball careers period are over. And um, with all of that being said, that's never really discussed in ter- from a labor perspective, or it's more, it's discussed from a sports perspective that, Oh, it's so, it's such, so tragic. Like left it all out on the floor. His last game, like he gave it every, gave everything for the team. He's like, yeah, he gave everything and he received nothing basically. Right. He, he, right. he, he, gave, he gave it all and his coach will get paid another year. Mm. He's going to have to go find a job. And, and, and the other things with, when I, when you, when you speak, think about that in the jobs context is I bring up all of these perceptions because sometimes I don't think people understand that college athletes from the football players, basketball players on down to, to the crew team, badminton players, anything, take your pick, water polo. These are, these are seven day a week engagements, yes. obligations. You are practicing, you are watching film, you are working out. You are in team meetings, you are strategizing, and then you play a game and you are traveling for those games when you were right. not home. Right. You and are, the type of are, courses you take, the scheduling right. of your courses, the, the the degree that you major in. I mean, all of it is shaped it by that. It surrounds exactly. It, it is it is it is not it is not outside in sports to academics. The academics surround the, the your your time as an as an athlete. Right. It dictates you. It dictates your entire life. It is not something where it's like, oh yeah, like I'm a college student and then I go play basketball on Saturdays. It's right. I'm a stu- I'm an athlete, and I have to be in college as well. And and people will think that maybe I just got this free ride. I don't have a course load or whatever. But yet I'm also doing this work that not that a that a English major is not doing at all. Right. And I'm getting no I'm getting no money for it. I'm getting I'm getting no I'm getting no for the value of my labor with the all of the TV rights that schools get with all of the mm-hmm. 
revenue streams that they get uh, with within their conferences because every team, every school in a conference gets a piece of the pie of the pie from conference uh conference television uh network deals like sec network big 10 network acc network and also how that when when those games from those conferences make it onto major networks like espn or the big one of the big four networks they all get a share of that pot the the commissioners get a share of that the 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 boosters the boards of trustees get a share of that the athletes don't yeah and so it's a lot of work it's a lot of it's it's a similar thing that like it is in the in the big four sports leagues but it's almost more cartel. It's more cartelized, and I, I, I don't. I may be making that word up, but people, people sometimes. In some ways, it's almost a cliche now when people consider the NCAA as a cartel. But if I'm a, if I'm a massive national conglomeration of a cor- of, of corporations and superstructures of like different conferences with different teams and different different commissioners and different members, I am just a multi tentacled organization that exploits my labor to make money. Uh, yeah. Like, like what, you, what's, what's, what is the difference in the structure than the bosses getting a kickback from everything else that their, their middle managers are making for them by exploiting their, the people below them who are making, who are also almost like the, the corner, the corner guys selling, selling for them, for example, not, not to be, not to take that metaphor too far, but it's essentially, mm-hmm. it is a structure where the value is created at the bottom and it only sifts upward. Right. It only, oh, the, it, the profits only get maximized. The people doing less of the amount of work receive a larger share from the people actually doing it. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and this it, it's so, you know, and I, I used to hear so, some of what you were talking about, like from people watching, uh, you know, I think, like you said, a lot of this rhetoric has died down, but, but you know, about yeah. like how lucky they are. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something I've, I've emphasized on the show before is that, at least for me growing up in the South, if I ever heard anything about unions on the news, it was probably on ESPN, right? Mm. It's probably in the sports section of the newspaper. I mean, it is one of the most high-profile labor management relationships, uh, that of the professional athlete, and it's one of the most high-profile set of unions, you know, the NFLPA and, and all of the the player unions. So uh, I really, yeah, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down and, and talking through that with us. Uh, I think there's a lot to dive in there. And I think more and more people are waking up to the reality that these folks are workers, that mm-hmm. they are performing labor, uh, whether they're classified as amateurs or professionals or not. Uh, so, you know, my personal hope would be that these players can organize. Yeah. And there's hints of that already. Um now, whether they would say collectively bargain with a school or perhaps on a conference level, you know, all that, it's hard to say where it's all going to go. But, you know, that would be my, my thoughts is that through organization is going to be the best means for the players to actually have some security, have some safety, have some, you know, longevity in their plans. Uh, because, you know, I'm sure as we see right now, some folks are going to be able to get some money, mm-hmm. but how equitable is that? Um, how how structured is that in terms of real working conditions and like the impact there? There's a lot, you know, a lot that needs to be addressed. And so I would encourage the players to, to organize. And I think it's incumbent on all of us in the labor movement to you know lock arms with them as fellow workers and and bring them into the movement yeah 
So speaking of, of sports unions, this is the, the, the final story that I told you that we wanted mm-hmm. to, to talk, talk with you about to, today, uh, Brad, is uh, Marty Walsh left the, uh, the position of Secretary of the Department of Labor to be a director for the National Hockey League Players Association. Um, and this, uh, by all accounts, it stunned everybody. It stunned Biden. It stunned, you know, like this really, really came out of nowhere. Um, and it's just unimaginable that you would give up labor secretary to be, you know, I mean, well, I guess it's it's unimaginable to me as somebody who cares about the labor movement, let's say, <laughs> that I would give up being le- labor secretary to be the director of the National Hockey League Players Association. Yeah, it's it, I'm I'm pretty fascinated by this development because like on one hand, I understand that like as you were uh, as you were saying Adam that like a lot of the battlefields of like of labor it, it historically have been in sports in the sense that um historically like in the late 60s there was this player in the MLB Kurt Flood who um he was attempting to reject a trade he was trying to refuse to, to be traded to another team and his and he, and he basically filed kind of like an arbitration like a labor suit against the MLB saying that I'm a worker I'm allowed to choose where I where I work and he appealed that all the way to the Supreme Court but he lost and that was one of the biggest like labor like labor cases in the late 1960s about like whether these athletes are workers or not and if they can be be considered workers or not and and funnily enough it it, when it's still in the vein of baseball um one of the most successful MLBPA heads um that really strengthened the the MLB Major League Baseball Players Union Players Association was, was a man named Marvin Miller, um, who was initially uh, uh, really heavily involved with the international mine workers during World War II, and and then later on um, the iron workers, um, and then he ultimately became the head of the MLBPA and really strengthened labor rights for the MLB after their conferences sort of splintered to make the MLB the primary baseball league i bring all of this up to say that like it's fascinating how sometimes these things really break into the national consciousness that a guy like marty walsh is for whatever reason seeing this opportunity to think that he could be i guess in his mind because of course i can't speak to what he's thinking but it kind of does boggle the mind from my perspective to think that he could think he could affect more change or bring more cachet to the NHLPA as opposed to being a literal literal cabinet secretary affecting labor policy for the entire country. And if he wanted to help those players or, or assist those players, it, he could certainly do that with in a more sectoral way across the board than just, than just representing hockey players at large. Um, my biggest curiosity when it comes to this as well as a result is I'm wondering how big of a Bruins fan Marty Walsh is. And I'm wondering if yeah. those ticket packages are a little, are, are kind of nice for, for an NHL official to, to maybe, maybe, maybe Marty doesn't like living in DC. Maybe, maybe he doesn't like the bureaucracy and maybe he'd like to just go see a few more home games back in Boston. When have you, uh, have you read Robert Kuttner's piece about this in the American prospect? 
No, I haven't, but I love Bob's a great writer. I I like I love reading his stuff. What 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 was he saying? So this is very interesting. He says that um Walsh got the offer partly because of his close ties to Boston Bruins owner and NHL Board of Governors Chair Jeremy Jacobs, who has donated thousands of dollars to Walsh's campaign committees over the years. Mm. Oh, shocker. So just what you love as the union to hear that your new leader uh, is in tight with ownership. Uh, When Jacob texted me this, my first response was, well, the NHL players are about to get screwed on their next contract. Um, If his term in DC was any indication of how his leadership will go. Uh, Well, his, but yeah, I guess it's less controversial to be in the NHL than busting national rail strikes. His term as as labor secretary, but also, you know, the, like the idea, I, the idea that I'm going to have a union representative who's big buddy buddies, who has literally gotten money from my boss, you know, like that's, that's just, that's suspect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You, you would, you wouldn't feel great about it. With you wouldn't feel great about it if you're a hockey player, if you had any sort of understanding of how the Department of Labor and the Biden administration completely and they're probably their <laughs> most recent large labor action essentially forced rail workers to accept one day of sick leave and then call it a day to be like, hey, we can't really have this happen right now. You know, it's near the holidays. Like, I really listen, I'm with you guys. I love workers. I love trains. I'm the Amtrak, I'm Amtrak Joe, remember? But like, get back to work and we'll figure this out a little bit later. All right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm with like, and to see that be essentially what the tenor of the largest labor um situation that came before it specifically came before the federal government, how that was handled, then the fact that Marty Walsh was the head of that department where that happened. And then seeing this disclosure that maybe a little bit of a deal sweetener is that his friend his friend is his two friends are heavy investors in his local team and and heavily investors in Marty Walsh. You you, yeah. you don't it's not it's not great to have a guy whose biggest biggest uh track record before leaving his cur- his his most recent position was essentially breaking a rail strike and then seeing that he's buddy buddy with ownership for when you need to ratify your next contract. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, not not good. Not, not good. at all. So uh... And I think it's important and I think it's important that they gave the, as this is this ex- ties in exactly to what we were talking about when we, uh, initially is that this is important because it's not like he this will this will this won't just affect hockey players if if it, if it, these things come to fruition this way. La- these a lot labor it's is like any other industry or like any other or like any other policy area. These things leak into each other. Uh, yeah. If there if this if there's a bad situation where where Walsh sides with management over players and they can't ratify a contract, if there's a lockout, if there's if there's a protracted strike, it still hurts the players to not be able to play and make money. And right. if that's if that is actually the case, Rob Manfred in the MLB, who was who was uh, who's the current MLB commissioner, but was known as essentially Bud Sealing, the former MLB commissioner's uh, fixer. Essentially, he kind of was just the guy to, to put out fires and stamp out dissent in the league. What if Rob Manfred says, "Oh, look, Marty Walsh, Biden's labor secretary, he's doing that. Maybe I'll take some notes for yeah. our next our next labor negotiation." Exactly. Adam Silver, Adam Silver, a guy who. You know, 
NBA writers and and uh, uh, fans alike love to be like, this league is different. Like he's so cool and loves players. It's like he loves them until they criticize China, and he loves them until he, they mess with his money. So maybe right. he can be like, listen, I'm taking notes from this. So like, and then, then Roger Goodell, the ultimate vampire, uh, the ultimate toady to all the owners. Like all of this, all I, I read, I bring all of these guys up to say these unique patterns of like evilness or like ways to screw over workers. They won't just stay in in hockey if that's the case. They will they will they will seep into other other aspects of sports, and they can seep into other aspects of labor. People, it's it's it, there's always going to be some level of a laboratory to have to see how you can uniquely crush workers. And Adam, I th- Adam, I think pointed to it in the sense of the NCAA essentially saying, "What if we just neoliberalized mm. uh, paying paying student athletes? They work for us, but somebody else pays them. They they go to school at a public institution, but but uh, the car wash says, oh, you're funny. We'll give you $3,000 for an ad, but it, it keeps us clean so we don't have to actually pay you or be your employer. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Brad, we're going to have to have you on again, I'm sure, because uh, I could talk sports from a left-wing labor perspective all day uh oh sure i'd love to a lot this is we great. didn't get a lot we didn't get to yeah um, we have to we'll, we'll have to talk about uh we'll have to get get into a deep uh brett Favre dive the next time. yes you know i've got my southern <laughs> miss sweatshirt on today uh for better or worse he's our most famous alum that's right uh, i was i i was in the womb when my mom and dad were watching him play in hattiesburg mississippi uh, so, you know, for better oh, or worse, so I was funny. born and raised a Brett Favre fan. Uh, and now he's one of the most notorious crooks of my home state. An uh, iconic New York. Uh, allegedly, allegedly. I don't want to get sued. Like, yeah, he's, no. he's on a suing street this week. <laughs> yeah, suing yeah, folks, but we, so. we don't want to be like Pat McAfee and Shannon Sharp getting a cease and desist from saying protected speech from right, uh, yeah, right. legal, legal aficionado Brett Favre. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess we can we can uh, we can wrap up with uh, predictions for the Super Bowl tomorrow. I guess unless Adam or, or oh, Brad, sure. you had any other you had any other ideas to wrap up this segment? No, no, that'd be that's that's fine. Yeah, we we uh, every week on our on on ESPN um, this this season we basically had given our our uh, three. Uh, I don't actually bet on them. I just give. I I'm less of a I'm less of a gambler than Emma is. Uh, I, I I dabble, but I I don't always. I don't encourage the audience to. That's their choice. But <laughs> we give picks just ba- basically like uh, teams of you know against the spread or over unders and things like that. And we when that is it that you give Bowl. your picks? <laughs> Uh, we give it on, we give those on Thursdays on our, on our, uh, on our, on, on OT. Ah, hmm. Yeah. Okay. We took a, ga- we're taking a gamble with the name already. So I figured we would just do more gambling, uh, <laughs> on, on Thursdays wrong. to begin with. Um, but Emma and I different. Emma thinks the Chiefs will take it, but I just think that I have underestimated the Eagles all season. I've kind of been like, at some point, like they're going to, their, their invincibility will, will end. And they've just really kind of steamrolled the entire league absent two games where they lost. So I have, I'm having trouble picking against them despite knowing that Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas city chiefs are very willing and able to pull a rabbit out of the hat um, to, to win games in these kind of like inscrutable, inexplicable fashions. They've done it five years in a row. So it's certainly possible, but I think that this Eagles team might be top to bottom. One of the most talented teams I've seen in a while. And I think they can, they can get it done. I am like a hundred percent in agreement with you. I want the Eagles to win. I'm leaning towards the Eagles for all the reasons you described. 
Um, it doesn't hurt that we all we have a Southern Miss player on the Philadelphia Eagles, Quez Watkins, right here. From oh Rutgers, no, yeah, Alabama. Well, um, but there is that part of me that knows Patrick Mahomes just can pull off miracles and make some amazing plays. So there's part of me that thinks he's going to pull it off, like in the last you know two minutes of the game. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the Eagles. I think I think the Eagles have been hot. Um, It'd be nice to see Jalen Hurts win one. I mean, definitely talk about a guy who got guy. a lot of shit talked about him uh, throughout his career. Uh, and, you know, just got to love a comeback story like that. You know, you get bounced out of Alabama, you go somewhere else, uh, make it into the pros, and now here he's in the Super Bowl. So I'm going to go with Philly, uh, knowing that Patrick Mahomes may screw that up in the last two minutes. Yeah, that's that's my feelings exactly. I'm 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 ready to be uh, proved wrong again by Patrick Mahomes. I seemingly happens every year. Now the question is, will there be any good commercials? Uh, we won't have many Bitcoin crypto related commercials this year. If I had to guess, uh, looks like we lost those last year. Um, unless they're just going to be like some of those. Unless they're just going to go the Wells Fargo route and be like. We're very sorry for being uh, <laughs> essentially a, a comp- we, we we here at we here at crypto.com are extremely regretful that we uh bilked all of our customers and don't have actually any uh uh, uh paper money at our in a, in our concerns anymore. But that would be hilarious. We are, we're, we're learning. We are we are all learning and we can't wait to be servicing you again soon. Yeah. Followed I up really by hope another that's... Wells Fargo one. I hope that's what happens. We see the crypto apology PR campaign tomorrow. We'll see. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Bradley, I'll stop. Appreciate you coming on. Going to have to have you on again. Yes, of course, guys. Thanks so much. Take care. See you guys soon. Bye. Bye. So, Adam, how do you want to wrap up? Do you want to hit some of these local stories or do you want to run through these uh, grievance testimonials? Let's see here. Um... We've got this, you know, the overtime taxes, the Medicaid, and the Chilton County lawsuit, or we've got the the grievance. I think this this finished with some some cool grievance wins. Okay. Uh, I like the I like the sound of finishing with that. Uh, we can address the taxes and Medicaid next week. Uh, to me, the two are very intertwined. Mm. Uh, so let's do that. All right. Yeah. So back. Um in the end of january uh twitter account at union elections username daily union elections uh they're an account that they you know they uh, it's pretty self-explanatory right they they put out some uh information about union elections uh because they have it every day and so like oh hey here's this union election that just came out and he'll like screenshot nlrb filings pretty cool pretty cool account uh and he also engages sometimes in uh discourse and this time he created some discourse when he asked, when he tweeted out, Union folks, what is the best grievance slash ULP that you have ever won? So we picked out about five or six uh, really cool ones. and uh, But we're going to start off with uh, um, with Adam, some some testimonies from Adam. Because you've got some pretty cool ones, right? Uh, yeah, I certainly had a lot of grievances um, and... Did not really deal with ULPs much, um, at least in my day job. Uh, they were relevant to my my staff union position. But um, thinking about some successful grievances and settlements, 
I spent over five years representing workers in Huntsville City Schools, and I think when I added it all up, I was able to put over a quarter million dollars back into the pockets of our members. You know, that's not insignificant. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just the pay-related cases. Yeah, obviously, there were, you know, grievances that weren't involving pay. Um, that I had a string of several non-certified support employees who were working at, in operations who had been misclassified, and they had been just strung along for years with promises of being regraded and given raises. It took a mountain of documentation, threats of lawyers, and months of persistence, but we won some of those cases, and those members received significant pay increases. Uh, and so that makes up a you know, a fair chunk of that total amount. But the biggest single win in terms of dollar amount, you know, is also possibly my favorite win. It was several years back. Um, oh, I don't know the exact year, but it was a year where the state legislature passed a 4% pay raise across the board for public school employees when at the same time, PHIP raised their health insurance cost. It's funny how that always seems to happen hand in hand. Um, well, we had this long time educator here in Huntsville. Uh, He had well over 30 years of service. Shout out to Bill, if you're listening. And this is the type of guy who always reads the fine print. Uh, He is that guy. He inspected his check stubs very closely, looking for that 4% raise. And he started doing the math and realized he didn't get the full 4%. See, Huntsville City Schools used to pay above the state minimum for certified educators. But then you had the state intervention and Wardinsky experiment in the early 20-teens, during which time the district reverted to paying the state minimum salary matrix for new hires. So you had two different pay scales, essentially. You had the veteran teachers who were grandfathered in above state minimum and all the new folks coming in at the state minimum. So when the state pay raise came around, Huntsville City Schools gave everyone a raise based off a 4% adjustment to the state minimum, not the actual salaries that people were making, which, of course, was the intent. So that meant hundreds of veteran teachers, the teachers who had actually stuck around through all the madness and some of the highest turnover in the state, were in effect penalized by receiving a pay increase of less than 4% of their salary. Mm. And that decision took place in a budget approved and implemented before Dr. Matt Aiken became superintendent. He was only there for a brief time, but during his tenure, I was able to make the case to him about this pay raise injustice, and he agreed to have his CFO settle the issue. Hundreds of teachers received a back pay check as well as the adjustment to their monthly salary going forward. And I do give a lot of credit to that teacher, Bill, who was not only careful enough to analyze his pay stub, but was persistent in bringing it to my attention as his rep, to the district's attention, and working with me as his rep to keep the issue alive. And I will give credit to the Huntsville City Schools and Superintendent and CFO at the time, Matt Aiken and Bob Haygood, for doing the right thing. Unfortunately, that's not as common as it should be. And it was nice to have an administration that would actually respond to the evidence and take appropriate action without having to be shamed in the media or threatened with litigation, even if, sure, we had to stay on them for a pretty long while. Uh, It was a win-win, right? The employees were made whole. The district avoided bad PR and legal costs by 
working with me to settle this. Uh, and instead of legal cost and bad PR, the new administration made a positive impression on their most seasoned teachers. So for me, it's a good reminder that honestly, there's a lot of opportunities for win-wins like that. Uh, if management is willing to operate in good faith. Mm. And when management operates in good faith and is responsive to the employees and their representatives, they might just find they can prevent and quickly remedy issues in the workplace before they even become a grievance, ULP, or lawsuit. So that's my my little grievance story. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, that... The idea, there's certainly an inherent conflict between employees and bosses, right? Like the, you know, which I mean, the, we are very um, clear about. And I know that's often not so clear from some places, uh, even some unions, right? Right. Absolutely. Uh, but there are, you know, there are, like you said, there are lots of instances where, where really the, the, you know the conflict is is manufactured by the boss and it doesn't has it doesn't have to be there you know there there are genuinely so many fights that if the bosses just gave workers what they were asking for it would actually be good for both parties you know maybe there are some or, or there are some certainly that that's not the case there are certainly some cases where you know Workers will win at the expense of bosses or bosses will win at the expense of workers. But there are some instances like the one that you just laid out where uh, workers winning is good for you know the organization and the employers. Right. Well. I mean, they made a mistake. I personally believe it was an intentional mistake by the person uh, responsible at the time. Uh, but whether it was intentional or not, it was a mistake and they owned up to it and they fixed it. And... It's amazing uh, how much easier that went than if they had just played hardball with me and, mm -hmm. and forced me to get ugly in that fight and, and bring other people involved or you know get the media or lawyers involved. It would have ultimately cost them more to go the adversarial route. Yeah. And at least they had enough sense to, to do the math and figure that out. But uh, as you said, oftentimes that's just not the case. Um, Adam is not the only guy with a good uh, grievance ULP story uh, that is affiliated with the Valley Labor Report. David all replied to the union elections account, and um, he recounted a story where seven employees were laid off against the collective bargaining agreement for six months, and he got them recalled with back pay and all benefits made whole. Uh, can't remember the exact number, but roughly $750,000. Good day for the home team. And uh, indeed, uh, three-quarter of a million dollars uh, for seven employees. That's you know, great. That's fantastic. That's really great. Um, and I didn't include these in, in the graphic requests to Joe, but um, the uh, <laughs> David ended up fighting with this guy in his replies who was saying that, Oh, this is actually bad for the employees. Like what, you know, whatever, well, you know, the, like they shouldn't have asked for that much, you know, uh, you know, the $750,000 for doing nothing. And it's like, uh, the employer shouldn't have broken the contract. Like the idea, I mean, this was a presumably, presumably just a working person that is so, you know, brain rotted that, 
he's in this situation where the you know the employer was wrong clearly paid seven hundred fifty thousand dollars because they were wrong and this guy is somehow saying oh no you know the employees shouldn't have asked for that like the idea I don't is, that's pretty pitiful it was wild 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 uh Jamie somebody that I don't know but had a very good uh, very good story said the grievance in itself isn't anything impressive but when we were just organized the first time I got called in as a steward they handed me the employee's write up and stated they intended to suspend him for one day I read it looked up and just said no and they accept it uh, so that's great we love easy wins like that that's fantastic yeah if only they all worked that way right <laughs> um Dave Camper, uh, somebody that we haven't had on the show, but who has, uh, who's you know been a supporter of the program, and, and absolutely, uh, we appreciate that. And uh, you know, I've had good conversations with him on Twitter. He said, "I got a probationary employee, as in no contractual right to just cause, reinstated with full back pay by demonstrating disability discrimination. Didn't even have to take it to arbitration. Kicked their ass in the grievance meeting, and they called the next day to settle." Uh, Great, great job, Dave. We love to hear stuff like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's also also why we we do talk about uh, EEOCs and mm -hmm. understanding your rights under Title Seven and that kind of thing because uh, sometimes it's a factor, even if you don't even think it's a factor. Right. Uh, and so it's important to know your rights there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Michael Murphy said company policy prohibited union t-shirts An employee quit instead of taking off his t-shirt. I was able to get a $20,000 in back pay award for Hobson's choice constructive discharge. Do you know what Hobson's choice means? No. I, I think that was, I probably should have looked that up, but it sounds like that's some kind of terminology, but uh, that's, that's pretty cool, <laughs> getting $20,000 in back pay for a, a constructive discharge for somebody that quit. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Constructive discharge is a uh, hell of a practice that is very, very prevalent. Yeah. Um, the next one is from Patrick Shepard. He is, uh, I think he's currently a Southern organizer for DSA, something like that. Um, he said, supervisor distributed offer letters and then tried to rescind them. I got 25 people paid for six months of a job that they didn't do. Sweet. Love to see it. Love to see it. Uh, Doki, Bet your supervisor thought hard next time. Yeah. Doki Chamato said, we were organizing right before COVID. COVID hit. They laid us off. We filed a ULP one Come back with employer-paid health care, 22% wage increases, and a path to full-time for part-timers. Our CFO and HR manager quit because the L was too heavy for them to carry around every day. The ULP said that they were using this as an excuse not to bargain even though the staff had voted for the union. We negotiated through being laid off and finished right when the ULP was resolved. So everyone got their jobs back and a new contract. We saved roughly 40 jobs. That Hell is yeah. fantastic. Love to see it. Love to see the union W's. Big dubs up on the screen. Uh, so that's going to be it for us this week. 
uh, we appreciate everybody hanging out with us. Uh, good show, Adam. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing what you do over there. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, don't don't forget to take the survey, y'all. Uh, don't yeah. forget tvlr.fm slash expand is our February fundraiser link. If you haven't already, uh, share it around. See if we can uh, get those numbers up, y'all. Absolutely, yeah. If you're it, definitely, definitely, you know, because we we tout that our biggest single source of funding is from our listeners, and that's true, but it is only one of like nine or ten, right? So it only it, it only makes up approximately like eleven or twelve percent listener support. Only makes up about eleven or ten, twelve percent of our income, and so we uh, definitely need union sponsors and union support to continue doing the program as it exists, but certainly to expand it. And so if you're a member of a union, please do consider asking your union to be a sponsor. You can do that at the local or international level or regional level. Unions can sponsor the program through purchasing advertisements through just their regular general fund, or they can purchase advertisements through their PAC funds, which I think are, even. you know, we were talking earlier in the main show about, you know, the PAC funds, uh, I, I would like to believe that spending dollar for dollar from PAC funds going to us is going to be much more valuable ultimately in the final analysis than a dollar going to some politician. Uh, so definitely consider that if, if you have control of, of PAC funds or if you, um, you know, if you're interested in, um, you know, if you know people on the PAC committees, you know, consider that, consider that. Uh, if you want to become a sustaining member, tvlr.fm slash donate. Uh, throw up our, our shirts on the screen again really quick. Cycle through those colors just so people can get a final look at them. Yeah. Uh, those are fantastic shirts. Definitely check out those shirts at tvlr.fm slash store featuring the amazing artwork of Tabitha Arnold. Shirts are $32 for a local pickup. Um, and if you're not local but you have reason to believe that we will be in the same area at some point, feel free to also pick local pickup as well. $32 for local pickup, a little bit more for shipping. Um, check it out, tvlr.fm slash store. Uh, until next week, see you later. All power to the work.